Welcome to Wizard Team, a Harry Potter cast for true Potterheads. Usually each week we discuss a chapter from the Harry Potter series, but today we're doing something a little different. I'm Bayana. And I'm Robin. Today we're doing another bonus episode. We're talking, we're speaking with Dr. Ebony Thomas at Ebony Teach on Twitter about Harry Potter, fandom, race, and trauma. Um, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, Dr. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas taught elementary school um, language arts, high school English, and creative writing in public schools for several years after graduating from Florida A&M. After graduating from the University of Michigan in 2010, she returned to her master's degree institution, Wayne State University, as an assistant professor of reading language and literature in the College of Education. In July 2012, she came to Penn GSE, where she is assistant professor in the Division of Literacy, Culture, and International Education. Her program affiliation is Reading, Writing, and Literacy. In her work, Dr. Thomas synthesizes post-colonial critical and critical race theory with data from her empirical research in classrooms to examine the ways that literature, media, and culture are positioned in schooling and society today. Dr. Thomas's program of research is most keenly focused on children's and adolescent texts, broadly construed the teaching of African-American literature, history, and culture in K-12 classrooms, and the roles that race, class, and gender play in classroom discourse and interaction. She is also working on a book, The Dark Fantastic, that will be out mm-hmm. soon, um, which you should all be on the lookout for. And it will include yeah. a lot of her works and works of other scholars. Um, and she's also one of, she was there when she the was fandom there. was born. So. And she will just, tell us some of that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, coming up. But first, um, we have some quick announcements. Use the hashtag wizard team on Twitter to follow along. Um, you can also tag and follow us at WeBlackAndNerds. Let us know your thoughts. Um, let Connie know your feelings. And mm. we out here. We out here. Um, become a Patronus or send us a cheering charm. Um, you can go to blackgirlscreate.org slash donate. Um, and if you want to support us but don't have the funds to do so, or even if you do, rate and review us on iTunes. And subscribe to our newsletter, follow us on social media, and join our Slack channel. Um, and then no news this episode, but we will talk about um, news if there is any in our next regular episode. Um, okay. Yeah. Now let's uh, talk to Dr. Ebony Thomas. Basically, what we do is um, we do a close reading of the series, chapter by chapter, and then we have these bonus episodes. And um, when we were thinking of our bonus episodes for Order of the Phoenix, your name came up because of your academic background. Um, and just, I, I, we both follow you on Twitter, and just your thoughtfulness in terms of... Um, the fandom and the the background of these stories and of fandom in general. Um, so that's why we were really excited to talk to you. Um, so I guess we're going to just get the first thing out of the way, the uh, like mandatory Potterhead question. What is your Hogwarts house? 
For many, many years, I believed that I was a Gryffindor. Of course I was a Gryffindor because, I mean, my sun sign is Leo. Um, I My Myers-Briggs personality test always gives me ENFJ. We're the giver, um, the communicator. So how could I not be a Gryffindor? However, ever since I became a professor, not every single quiz... And Pottermore has given me Slytherin. So I was probably one of those people who (laughs) would have expected to get sorted into Gryffindor and then got into Slytherin. Incidentally, in my fanfic, so I wrote some outtakes about where I thought the characters would be in my sort of alternate all my ships came in, which most of them didn't. Um, Far Future, a daughter of one of the main characters actually gets sorted into Slytherin that way yeah, um, out of the Weasley connection. And then later, after I wrote that story in 2002, 2003, um, that actually became canon or a part of the expanded canon um, with Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Do you, so do you like identify with Slytherin at this point or are you? I absolutely do now. I do now. I think that people, you know, we, we look at those houses as absolutes, don't we? Both as readers and in the fandom. But I think that many of the characters who are indelibly associated with their individual houses could have been rock stars in other houses. Um, we, you think about Harry, who absolutely could have been a Slytherin, a star Slytherin, and that's part of the narrative, the Harry Potter narrative that, you know, he rejects that. I think Hermione, and often people think that, oh, she would have been sorted into Ravenclaw. I think that she also has some puff um, features. You know, she's incredibly loyal. Um, she really does remind me of some of the true blue Griffin, um, sorry, um, Hufflepuff characters that we read throughout the series. So I, um, I now embrace my Slytherin self, but I do wonder, am I a Slytherin now because of my lived experiences? One has to be, um, tenacious and ambitious, um, and selective in order to succeed as Ivy League faculty. But maybe in my teens or 20s, I would have been a Gryffindor. So another question I have is, do people exhibit the characteristics of their house throughout um, a lifetime? And now that I've lived a little life, I sometimes wonder whether or not that's the case. Are, Are we the same person fundamentally from birth to death? Or do we change? And does each chapter in our lives reflects, um, does each chapter in our life reflect that change? So anyway, you didn't ask me to go on and on about houses, but I'm thinking a lot about it. Yeah, we talk a lot about houses. And um, one of the things that I kind of have solidified, because I'm a Ravenclaw, and I'm inextricably tied to my Ravenclaw identity, so much so that like, when people have even mentioned that I possibly could exhibit Gryffindor characteristics, I lash out. (laughs) But we, you know, I've kind of come to the conclusion that it's really, as an 11 year old, when people, when you're getting sorted, at least in the books, um, it's really the characteristics that you aspire to that really may make your house. Because if you look at characters like 
Peter Pettigrew, um, who, when he was at Hogwarts, was enthralled with someone like James Potter, who's a, a Gryffindor, Gryffindor, <laughs> like no secondary houses. Um, if he's looking up to those people and admiring those qualities, then it does make sense that he would get sorted into Gryffindor. However, his life experiences have changed him in such a way that like the Gryffindor attributes no longer really apply to who he is when we see him in the books, but they might have applied very well um, or at least have been something that he had aspired to, which is what got him that sorting in the first place. So I think it's really interesting. And yeah, we could, we, we could do a sorting bonus episode for Another sure. <laughs> but yeah, um, I think it's, but I always think it's really interesting to ask people, um, what houses they affiliate with and how that kind of, how they identify with them. I know some people that are like, well, you know, I'm a Hufflepuff, but it doesn't really matter. And then I know people that are like, I'm a Hufflepuff and don't dare, you know, and it's very much like a strong part of how they identify with the fandom and with themselves. And I think I kind of fall into that latter category. Bayana, how, how strongly tied are you to your house? I don't know. Um, I mean, I think like I... I mean, we've talked about it on the podcast before, but, like, because, like, I got sorted into Hufflepuff the last time I did a sorting on Pottermore, um, but I've identified it as a Ravenclaw for a really long time. Um, so I kind of like that idea of it not being fixed. And also, um, we've also talked about, like, offline about, like, present, like, what you present as and, like, what you value. Um, and so I think a lot about, like, Hermione in the way that, like, you would think just, like, kind of, one-dimensionally that she would be a Ravenclaw but then when you kind of look at what she really values right like when she's like books and cleverness there's more important things um that's kind of what makes her a Gryffindor um and I think that while I generally um mainly value like my Ravenclaw traits and that's like how I like to present I think you know deep down I'm like really soft Hufflepuff but um yeah I mean I think it definitely depends on like where you are in life and yeah, and I think also, like, those values change as you get older as well, so. So I know that you had mentioned a couple of times um, that you started in the fandom kind of in your late teens, early 20s, I think. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, when did you first read Harry Potter? Um, and then what drew you um, to the fandom? Because I always feel like there's there are people that I'm one of them who read Harry Potter, and it was a very solitary thing, and I didn't really join the fandom until much later in life. Um but I was always like a huge fan of the books. So I'm wondering, like, did you have that kind of, what, what when did those things happen for you? I'm so happy to tell this story these days. I've gone full circle. So um, Harry Potter fandom was huge for me in my 20s, not so much in my um, late 20s through early 30s. And now I'm 40, I just turned 40. So. Harry Potter did not exist when I was a teenager. So I was born in 77. The books didn't come out until 97. So it would have been impossible for me to read Harry Potter as um, a, a teen. But I read it um, fairly quickly after it came out. So um, I avoided the books for about a year. I first heard about them in 1998. At the time, I was an undergraduate at Florida A&M University. And... Um, People who were in fandom back then know this about me. 
people today wouldn't have guessed. I was pretty conservatively religious. And the first thing I heard about Harry Potter was that it was a series about witches and wizards and the very thing that, you know, we should be avoiding. Of course, I was intrigued. But during that phase in my life, um, in that particular silo, you have to remember, this was a completely different time. 20 years ago, we did not have social media in the, um, the way that it exists today. Um, and um, we had just come out of an, an incredible war that will never be acknowledged. That was the war on drugs that happened in the 80s and the 90s across the United States and our urban areas. And of course, throughout Latin America. And some of us are survivors of that war. And so in order to explain my survival, I became very religious in my late 20s and early, uh, no, sorry, late teens, early 20s. So anyway, that converged into a kind of person who at 20, 21 years old, I saw Harry Potter and was still reading children's literature, but it was a book about training witches. And so it was something that in that context, it was just, I wouldn't have read it. This is how I read it. And I'm going to preface this by giving you the lead up front. So the moral of the story is that, or the ending of the story is that my close Harry Potter fandom friends have told me that time travel will perhaps be invented someday. And you made yourself read Harry Potter. I'll explain why. I, a, a brand new hardcover copy of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was just left in my classroom, my fifth grade classroom in February 2000. So it was um, the second semester, first year of teaching. Um, I had fifth grade language arts and um, I wasn't going to read, you know, I had already said, okay, well, you know, not going to read this book. It just appeared. And none of my students ever claimed that book. I think perhaps some kid's parent bought that book and they were trying to just hand it off or they just left it or they forgot. And the, the whimsical thing is that my friends think you put that book in your classroom because everything else in your life for the past two decades followed that moment. So I took the book home and I read Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. That was my first book. I was so intrigued that before the weekend was over, I went and purchased the other two books that were available. And I fell into this cycle of reading and rereading and rereading. I just, I fell headfirst into the, not only the series, but into the Wizarding World. I was... I mean, I, I kept it quiet because it wasn't something, fandom wasn't a badge of honor for Generation Xers in our 20s. Quite the opposite. I mean, watch the old Revenge of the Nerds movies in the 80s. Recall Steve Urkel in the 1990s. This just was not, we were not the generation that treasured being a nerd. That's a millennial thing. And I've told you why I just fell on the X, Generation X side. If Harry Potter wasn't out for you until you were 20 years old. I think you're not a millennial. Maybe Generation Y. Anyway, 
So I hit it. You know, I hit it while I was I I was falling in love with this series. I was dating. I was occasionally going out. I was this normal 22-year-old on the surface. But then I just, my imagination and my mind were gripped by this narrative in a way I hadn't experienced since loving Anne of Green Gables in the world of Avonlea when I was in middle school. So instead of pathologizing it, which I would have, which is why timing is so important, I think, for just everything in life. If this had been 10 years before, I would have quietly just obsessed for a while, judged myself. There wouldn't have been a way to connect with other people to find out, is it just me or do you, do you also want to go to Hogwarts? Um, I went online and I very quickly found fan fiction. I was aware of fan fiction and fan communities because sort of my proto-fandom involvement was on the Kindred Spirits listserv, um, which is all about the works of Lucy Maud Montgomery. It was um, sponsored by the University of Prince Edward Island. But to me, that was a hybrid listserv. So we were all huge fans of Anne of Reed Gables, but there was nothing, nothing I've experienced since well, a few new fandoms. I think discovering Trek about a year or two ago after avoiding it on purpose for like four decades. Like, oh, no, I'm not going to be a full nerd. And then just, you know, I'm all over it now. I, I think falling in love the first time with, with a boy, which I did at FAMU, and falling in love with Potter. Um, one was embodied. One was my mind and spirit and imagination. I think they're comparable. I just was totally in love with that series in 2000. I loved it. So, and can't, you know, I'm sure that now that's not a pathological <laughs> thing to say. But that, <laughs> no, absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> like everything you're saying, I'm like, yep, this all sounds very, very familiar. <laughs> similar. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, because millennials are well, cool. I'm actually <laughs> like so, an yeah, older millennial, I guess. I was in high school when the books came out. So um, I, well, actually it was like oh, yeah. ending so junior high and then like starting freshman year of high school. Um, right? Yeah. And so I actually didn't, I, around the same time, I, I found the books um, when Chamber of Secrets was out. Um, very close to Prisoner of Azkaban being released. And I um, had another, I had a moment as well when I was later in high school re reading the books and I was at a church picnic. And um, for my mom's, I went to an AME church in San Diego. Um, and one of the things is I moved in the middle of that period. So I moved from um, Anaheim to San Diego, which isn't that far away, but it's enough when you're 15 to like rock your world. Um, and oh, so I really found a lot of solace yeah. in those books and the, and, and like the trio were really probably my best friends at the time. Um, the trio and NSYNC together, <laughs> those were, that was my social group. But, um, <laughs> I re I vividly remember the pastor of my mom's church coming up to me and trying to get into this like discussion with me about, um, Harry Potter and it's like witchcraft and you know these things and I had already read the book and I remember my mom like at that point I was such an avid reader that my mom had kind of given me leeway she was you know it wasn't like oh let me check out these books that you're reading anymore because I like she couldn't keep up with me um anyway so she was just like you know what's good and what's not good to read I trust you 
So um, I do vividly remember that, like, confrontation, I guess I would say. And so I've always kind of figured that the fact that there is, like, a small percentage of Black Potterheads comes from that kind of religious dichotomy and that religious aspect of um, this is a series about witchcraft. And um, I wonder if you if you agree with that or or not. Oh, I absolutely do. No, I absolutely do. And I'm thinking about um, ways in which now I don't touch on religion in the dark fantastic. Um, but I would uh, encourage anyone listening to the podcast who's interested in this to take up that work. Um, I'm really excited about where studies of Black speculative, speculative fiction and especially Black fans are going. So um, NYU Press was intrigued. Um, Henry Jenkins is my series editor because um, this is one of the first accounts of a black fan and like I'll use my black fan experiences throughout um, the dark fantastic to really begin so each of the chapters you'll see begins with you know sort of my experiences and fandom like why was I in fandom at that point and I think um, that you're you're very correct when you say that the books were cathartic and so two were fan engagements because my father died suddenly in May 1998 and then around 2000 2001 the boy I'd fallen in love with I knew that it wasn't going to be you know forever and so I was dealing with two kinds of heartbreak both losing a parent um, and then also losing my first love and so dealing with both of those uh, crises, um, I turned to the church. And while I am still religious in part, I still, you know, um, I wouldn't say I'm completely secular. I found what I needed in those early fan communities. And what talking to others who were in early Harry Potter fandom, there were two things we all had in common. Everybody had some deep personal thing that had happened to them around the turn of the millennium, which drew us together. And the, the second thing is, um, unfortunately, something that I believe has disappeared from digital um, affinity groups like fandoms. We all became family. That still happens that still happens very differently today. Um, in 2000, it was so new to be able to talk to people in real time for no money. You know, you, don't, you weren't spending $20 a minute to talk to someone in Australia in this broad chat room. And to this day, I mean, goodness, it's almost 2018. So that was, um, that listserv started in 2000. We are, um, we're going to be lifelong friends. And we are as diverse. I mean, diversity wasn't even a deal. We all loved this series. We loved the world that um, Joanne Rowling created. And that bonded us and, um, together in ways that I still see happening in fandoms, but happening very differently and um, 
much more complexly. I think we underestimated the capacity of digital communities um, like fandoms to mirror um, some of the sticky things, some of the traumas, some of the um, problematic things that you find in the desert of the real, um, in the real world. Yeah, I mean, I that it's really interesting to hear you talk about like kind of the start of the Harry Potter fandom. I think, especially like for me, I was um, I was three when the books came out, but I didn't start reading them until like two thousand um, when I was like six or so, six or seven, um, and so I just had like a very different relationship with the books, and a lot of it was like solitary because I was so young. <laughs> well, they were for you. The books they were written for yeah. you too. They were not. We were not interesting though because like I remember reading um Deathly Hollows like when it first came out and I was like in the car while my mom was in the grocery store um and then this like older white lady knocked on the window and was like I haven't read it yet how like is it good and it was just it was like the weirdest um like interaction I'd ever had like just because like in any other situation that wouldn't happen you know um so like I got like glimpses of those things like growing up and reading them but it just not until like now um that I'm like kind of seeing how like just vast and like it's so great to me that it's like intergenerational and like people are forging like lifelong friendships from this um yeah I mean and then I also um had a question just about so like we've seen kind of the fandom um evolve and change and grow um but then what are your thoughts on the actual like content and the world doing the same and like yeah so like how do you feel about like the expanded content that's been coming out in the last couple of years well i write about it a bit in the dark fantastic um i think it's the best of worlds and it's also um fraught with um pitfalls at the same time so for instance of course i loved um some of the additions that rolling has made via um so spake so spake jr you know her pronouncements from on high about um characteristics of certain characters that we didn't know before um or if it's through pottermore or if it's through fantastic beasts Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, I welcome more about the world. Um, I will say that I'm more heavily involved in other fandoms at this point, but I still follow Potter. You never leave Potterdom. Um, you, you just don't. You don't leave. You're always a Potterhead, always. However, um, having said that, giving her the cookies for making Dumbledore gay, for, you know, and then we've seen that play out, um, for saying that Hermione, yes, could have been biracial mm. or black. I think that magic in North America shows the limits of some of the world building. I tend to agree with all of the Native fans that have um, issued some um, consternation around the ways in which um, Native and uh, First Nations um, customs and culture and personhood were rendered 
in magic in North America. I think we have to listen to those concerns. And unfortunately, instead of addressing them, um, both Warner Brothers and or the author chose to sort of block that out. So several of those lifelong fans got blocked. And so um, I think I have always experienced a tension with the canon, which is why I wrote um, an irreverent fan fiction relatively early on, which some people loved um, and some people thought was disrespectful. Um, between the canon, so the author's world, the author's, you know, copyrighted <laughs> um, world, and then what happens to the book once the author sends it to the publisher, presses send on their um, digital device, and it is given to the public. Give it, um, so I tend to be very broadly fandom sympathetic and reader response sympathetic. As a matter of fact, as a literacy professor, I um, study reader response and um, classroom interaction. So for me, meaning is made beyond the text as people interact with. So Rowling, when she wrote you know, her story, um, and I think it's an amazing origin story for any kind of book. Um, I love her um, biography. However, you know, when she, you know, that book goes into hundreds of millions of people's hands, what, what we read and what shapes our consciousness and imagination is not going to be an exact carbon copy of what her intention was when she set those words on the page. And I think that's the space where understanding fandom, understanding the reading experience, and understanding audience comes into play. Yeah, I mean, that, that's funny because that's <laughs> kind of all we talk about. <laughs> um, just like, yeah, I mean, I, I know like I've been thinking about a lot, especially um, around Cursed Child and especially after I saw it, um, just thinking a lot about like, what I was taught when I was in college about like, cause I was an English major. So just that idea that you just mentioned about kind of once it's out of the author's hands, like their intention doesn't really matter anymore. Um, and it's really about how you as like the reader interpret it. But often yes. like in college we're reading people who are dead. Right. And like, so they can't really talk back to us about what they intended um, and so now, especially with like fandom growing and things like Twitter, where you can like have a conversation with JK Rowling, um, if she like happens to see you in her mentions, um, and has time to respond, like it, it changes that and it makes it so much more complicated. Um, and then also Robin and I spend a lot of time complaining about how like she and Warner Brothers and like just the whole, her whole brand doesn't really seem to understand her audience. Um, yeah, it, it's like a really, it's like an interesting tension and like, it's complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I can, um, give your listeners a little bit of context about early Harry Potter fandom. So I'm so amused that fandom historians have characterized the, the period of my greatest involvement, which was between the publication of the Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire and book six, which was the Half-Blood Prince. Um, no, 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 I'm wrong. 
Um, it was between Goblet of Fire yeah. and Order of the Phoenix. The 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 time of the three year summer mm. because summer lasted for three years. I am just so amused. <laughs> I think that's perfect. I wish we'd known that name while we were <laughs> living through it because I think that's a great characteristic. Um, to ascribe to the feeling in that fandom because spring was over. So if you want to think about like sort of Greek mythology or even the Silmarillion, you know, if you think about first there were the lamps and then uh, Melkor struck down the lamp. Sorry, I know it's the wrong fandom, but hey, it's related. Um, you know, Melkor struck down the lamps and then there were the, the two trees and then you struck down. So it was, but yeah, the spring of the Harry Potter fandom certainly was during the first three years when the first four books were uh, published. So 97 um, was when Philosopher's... Uh, I'm just not on my podcast game. Sorry. All right. Let me start that sentence over because I know you can edit this nicely and make me sound halfway um, intelligent. Um, so 97, of course, was Philosopher's... <laughs> goodness 97 was philosopher's stone <laughs> 98 was when it became sorcerer's stone here in the u.s then we had chamber of secrets in both places prisoner of azkaban 99 um class of 99 damn you so that was my year that i graduated from college and then of course goblet of fire so we had a three-year period between july 2000 and june 2003 when two things happened, we had no new canon besides the movies. So we had, I think the first movie or two came out during that period, but they weren't giving us any new, you know, information. We'd all read those books probably 50 or 100 times each, um, probably even more. Um, but then we also had a period where rolling, you know how the rolling that you, um, you ladies probably know today who comments frequently and she's on Twitter, that is new social media age rolling. Rolling in the early 2000s was writing her books. She remarried, had another child. She was busy and she was not talking to us. So... We had both no new canon and no new um, sort of extra canonical information. And so it really was an interesting time. So, you know, that was when most of the early Potter fan fiction sort of flourished. The first fan artist, um, you saw the rise of the first major controversies. Um, you know, which really began, the controversies in the fandom really began in late 2000. Like one of our first list of served fights on Harry Potter for Grown Ups Yahoo group happened in de December 2000. It's all archived and you can get to it unless someone's deleted it. And um, that led to the establishment of sites like Sugar Quill, um, eventually Leaky Cauldron, um, and the fandom began to balkanize beyond the two earliest spots where MuggleNet was where the kids were. And then Harry Potter for grownups was where, you know, adults and some teens hung out who, you know, because at the time the characters were really too young for us to, you know, have the fun with them that we were having. <laughs> so um, we have the same problems that I see 17 years later in Voltron Phantom, for instance, like, oh my God, you're shipping and, you know, doing these characters, our kids. So yeah, that was another source of attention. <laughs> now in 2017, Rowling has let us know what they're doing in their 40s. Well, not 
20s, but they're 30s. So it's not as taboo as it was um, to ship, particularly the ships that were non-het ships. So um, there was, um, this was a much different time when it came to Slash, when it came to thinking about LGBTQ issues. And so, uh, yeah, it was a quite interesting time. And the fandom, as it expanded, um, became much more complicated. It was still fun, but there were more complex issues that arose. Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you talk about um, the the spaces where um, the fandom rose up from. I don't know about Sugar Quill. I just like wrote that down. Like I have to go find that. Um, but Bayana and myself were both on the programming team for LeakyCon, which came out of the Leaky Cauldron. Um, and it's a great, we're already plotting on getting you there so we can have all these wonderful panels. <laughs> but. Well, that would be interesting because your founder of LeakyCon, who is the listener, but like we were on different fandom sides of the fandom. I'll go now. Oh. But we were on different sides of the fandom. <laughs> so, um, I was a fictionally HB4GU girl and I was a diehard Harry Hermione shipper huh. back then. And they were on the other, yeah, I was one of those. <laughs> Didn't you know how it worked? Didn't you look at my fan lore page? It's right out there. And so I was involved with all those controversies. Um, to give you another example, um, back in 2002, the first time I came to New York was when Cassandra Clare, yes, that Cassandra Clare, wow. called me and said, hey, Em, you want to come to New York? And so I came to New York for the very first time in my life and uh, I have to hang so out many with Cassandra Clare questions, but we Potter do not have time. <laughs> and slept on the floor. And now that's a huge story. She, yep, she, yeah, she is um, still someone I think fondly of and was friends with back then. Yeah, I know, I know. I have a whole perspective on everything that you would ask. Um, I'll head that okay. off at the pass by saying that I um, have been, I know everything, but I cannot speak on, I will, I cannot and will not speak on 95% of it. <laughs> a lot of what's circulated over the past two decades um, are, um, is I feel um, like we need an oral history of the fandom. And I and will I'm remind everyone on this podcast on. what um, <laughs> Chimamanda Adichie says about the danger of a single story. So, okay, that was a perspective. But, um, you know, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, please do. And you know who you should also interview is Heidi Tandy, who's the founder of Fiction Alley and one of my oldest now friends, dearest, not saying she's old, Heidi, if you hear this, you're not old, but uh, one of my longest friends. So we have been friends since mid 2000. <laughs> and she's really kept me looped in, particularly when I ran into my controversy. So I was caught up in this gigantic plagiarism expose on the Bad Penny Live Journal in August 2006, which my nemesis on the other side of the fandom planned. Well, I had a big Harry Potter gathering for my birthday in Michigan. I was living um, in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time. And while they timed the expose for my birthday because everybody knew when my birthday was. And they timed it. So I <laughs> no write about that about in The Dark Fantastic. It's the first time I've actually told that story 
um, you know, the, all the big name fans back then, we do not talk about, it's almost like Fight Club. We don't talk about. Wow. And so people do think that some of what has circulated perennially is the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth because the other side hasn't spoken. But there is another side. There are actually other events that happened. And um, yeah, so um, yeah. And I think that's true of fandom now. So I haven't been in close touch with the inner workings of fandom since 2007. Um, like the, you know, sort of the the big name fans who have emerged since um, those early web 1.0 groups. And I'm sure there are new controversies that have emerged. Um, that Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that came up at LeakyCon, um, not this year, but two years ago, and it was my, that was my first LeakyCon. And I remember like coming, um, Bayana wasn't able to go. And I remember like, calling her and texting her like oh my god there's so much like fandom issues that we just we weren't a part of because we weren't we were over in the corner by ourselves being introverts and reading and not being like looped in and I think one of the things that really struck me was like there has been this reckoning of like big name fans because I was even like what's a BNF like I don't even know this you know but like um this reckoning of like the power that they had over the fandom and like what that did and you know and how that changed a lot of things and like now I think it's trying to you know flatten out a little bit more and I think also with social media and stuff it's much harder to become like a big name fan in the same way um so I I'm I mean okay we have to get into like trauma and the books and stuff like that but i i am all in on this fandom mystery yeah i just want to talk we're scrapping the agenda i'll come back go back to your agenda i can always come back when you have me back i'll say yes i'll fit it in i'll say yes Awesome. Well, whenever you want to, we'll have you on. Um, so yeah, so I think one of the things to get into um, the uh, the content of the book, I guess, especially as we are currently in Order of the Phoenix, is thinking about the structures um, that exist in the wizarding world and how those kind of translate into kind of the structures that we have. Um, you know, we're... Um, reading this now, like doing a very close chapter by chapter, line by line read. Um, And as adults, there's a lot of nuance um, and a lot of like detail in Harry's trauma in The Order of the Phoenix that Bayana and I have both talked about has like been really startling because, I mean, it was always there, but just uh, reading it as young adults, kids, and adolescents, we didn't fully grasp or understand. So um, since you had always, you know, you first read it as, you know, a young adult, but still, you know, an adult in your 20s, like, has that trauma always been really striking to you or? Oh, absolutely. I, when I, um, we had waited for Order of the Phoenix for so long, so three years, we're all focused on, um, you know, what is this next book going to be like? So, of course, uh, my Paradise duology was written before. Um, it was only, uh, only the first four books were of canon were, were out, so we didn't have um, books five, six, and seven. Um, 
I was really traumatized by Sirius's death because he oh. was not a death that many people during the three year summer predicted. Uh, we and it was unnecessary. Oh well, holy! We're recording this on Sirius's birthday, so I just yeah. need to like. Oh, serious, my serious, my serious. So one of my good friends in early Potter fandom was um, Carol Estes, who was um, serious geologist. And she wrote some of the first serious het fic because a lot of the, um, I read both. So I was always, I, I've never written a lot of slash, but I've always, I've always read both het and slash. Um, and she wrote, I, I'm sure one of the fir very first serious, serious, um, het fics in fandom. So she was writing or began her fic. She and Penny Lintenmeyer, who, um, was the list uh, founder and um, headmistress of Harry Potter for Grown Ups Yahoo group. Um, they wrote a story called, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm not remember, or I'm remembering it, but they began before I began Trouble in Paradise. And so anyway, we were no one because all the other marauders died. So we thought that the smart money on all sides of the fandom, regardless of ship, regardless of faves, regardless of um, our um, no TPs or our, you know, the characters we hated. Um, I'm infamous for hating one of the characters and you all may hang up on the call after I tell you this. I won't tell you now, but um. <laughs> I it was <laughs> shocking, shocking to all of us that Sirius died. And the way he died was just, I, I found it traumatic. And between that and then fandom controversies and shenanigans around Nimbus 2003, where I was co-chair um, co of programming and also just trying to finish my master's degree and figure out what I was going to do with my life. I took my first small step back from fandom. So I was still in the discourse, but I will admit Order of the Phoenix sort of broke, began to break that spell for me. I still loved the series. I still was um, a, a well-known fandomer, but I also expanded my reading and expanded, um, you know, the stuff I was fangirling um, as of mid 2003. So that was like because what? of, or not like totally because, but like because of Sirius's death. Okay. Party, yeah. part, partly. He was one of my favorites. He's a huge, huge character. And my, I wrote, my um, duology was like, I wrote, I'd written almost a million words of fan fiction. I mean, there, I wrote really long chapters in my 20s. So when I meet people today, they're just like, what did you do in your 20s? Did you go party? Did you, I traveled a lot, but I also really, Potter fandom was what I did in my 20s. And so I wrote um, these really long, and Sirius has a gigantic post-canon role in both stories. So I really did like his character quite a bit. Um, he was probably my favorite of the Mar Marauders generation. And Same. so not only his butt, but the way that he died, I was just, I yeah. didn't understand. And there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook. There was no way for me to sort of process that trauma. And, you know, um, 
going beyond the veil, there was also a religious reason that I talked about at the time. And I'm sure my um, live journal has been not used for 11 years, but it's still out there. All posts are public. You can go back and look at it. At the time, I think I mentioned that the way that he died by falling beyond a veil, that has, um, for evangelical Christians, that has like a deep, deep symbology for us. Also, for people who are Orthodox Jewish or who are, you know, following the Bible. If you think about the tabernacle and the first and second temple, going beyond the veil is something that, you know, like he falls into death and evil. But going beyond the veil in our faith, it's like, yeah, you know, if you have sin, you might not be able to handle that. You'll die. But, you know, that's where the glory of the Lord is. And so I was just deeply, deeply, deeply offended. Like I wasn't even, oh, the series is wicked. I was years beyond that sort of processing of the world and wouldn't go back to my previous frames. But I just did not like that death. I really took that hmm. personally. And so that was step one or stage one for me. Stage two was definitely 05 and 06 with the publication of the Half-Blood Prince and then, um, um, you know, the scandal in 06. So the ending or the balance of the series, you know, I appreciate it now with some time and distance, but I think having the three years without canon really did shape the, seri uh, the series for some of us who came in early and were reading the books as... Um, older teens and especially adults right yeah I mean I guess I didn't even really think of that and just kind of like I mean yeah and just like my own reactions to like the cursed child especially um and part of it I guess is that gap and just like having finding other avenues to think about and talk about what would happen to the trio when they grow up um and so yeah. like having all of those things in my head and then going to see this thing, which I mean, this isn't the only reason I don't like it, but one of the reasons is that it's not what I would have imagined, right? Or like what I've discussed with other people. And so I guess I just never thought of that gap doing that for like the last three books and that doing that to people in the fandom. It's like a really interesting parallel. Well, we're seeing that unfold with another fantasy series that a lot of Potter fans either are co-fans of or graduated to. And of course, that's A Song of mm -hmm. Ice and Fire. Now, I know I have no business complaining about Rowling, who was lovely rolling out seven books of an incredible series. And she only had that one gap while she was finishing things and living life. So it was 2000 to 2003. We waited for the, you know, and then the last two books came, the last three came out relatively. Rowling did a wonderful job um, rolling out those seven books. So um, a three-year gap seems like nothing when we look at my beloved but oh my frustrating God. George R.R. R. Martin, who has kept us on the, um, waiting for it's the next books. Um, until, yeah, it's been, yes. Are you yeah, also, um, yeah. I quit. I just quit. I don't care anymore. So I guess, you know, having give, you know, imagine that three year period for us, it was similar to what, you know, the ways in which Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire fandom are sort of dissolving because he's letting, you know, two um, showrunners, for better or for worse, you know, tell his ending 
because he won't, you know, builds up this huge saga. It would have been as if she stopped after Goblet of Fire and we waited until when she published um, Deathly Hollows to find out what the ending is. So anyway, I do, I am very curious about the way that time, space time influences fandom and fan readings and how we read things. Because if you don't have much time in between things to shape your schema and to shape what you think about it or for you to mull over it or have your imagination shaped around it, I think that, you know, you respond to things very differently. Coming into a fandom at the beginning is very, very different than coming into a fandom toward the end. So um, I've come into other fandoms. Um, I'm trying to think of other fandoms I've started. I started Sleepy Hollow fandom, but I never overly invested in it because I just didn't trust the showrunners. And of course, I understood what happened there. So Potter was one of the few fandoms that I started. I'm starting Star Trek Discovery, but I'm finding that a, I don't have a whole lot to comment on, and B, you know, starting Star Trek Discovery kind of doesn't count because I'm not old enough to have been an original fan of the you original know, I, series. I but, did a large um, so I, rewatch of, or not rewatch, a first-time watch because all of the Star Treks are on, um, they were on Netflix, and I think they're still on Netflix or Hulu. And I'm finding Star Trek Discovery. Yes. Even though there has literally been no time between my binging of the other shows, there's been probably like a month in between that and then the restart. I find myself really interested in how it matches up with the mythology. And maybe because I'm older, knowing that there was a lot of time in between for like the creators, um, it has really, it, I, it's interesting because it has really changed how I look at what they're doing. Um, I don't know if that, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think the age that you are or the life stage that you're in or what's going on in your life absolutely influences your experiences in a fandom. So I have no time. So the last thing I needed to do (laughs) for the 50th anniversary of Trek, and the only reason I started watching uh, Star Trek in the first place was because um, my um, they took Doctor Who off of Netflix because BBC, yeah. So I ended up watching um, lots and lots of Trek. But going back to Potter, um, I think that the ways in which you interface with trauma in the series will has a lot to do with what's going on in your life. So a lot of us really latched on to early the the first few books, so early Harry Potter, because of Harry really dealing with and coming to terms with the death of his parents, um, being moving from the uh, muggle world to the wizarding world to feeling conspicuous and famous because he was brand new and singled out. There were people who really related to him. There were people who related to Hermione being the smartest witch of her age and, you know, being the standout in class and um, coming again, also coming from a different world because she's muggle born. And and then of course there were those who um, related to Ron. I was not one of them, but... um, But there were people who absolutely related and have spent the past 17 years trying to explain the character to me. I love I'm, Ron. You know, I don't relate famous. to him at all, but I love him all the same. Is that your character that you dislike? Um, I'm still guessing here. <laughs> all the re- 
all the receipts are, are, are Googleable. So. <laughs> yeah, do not, if you are a Ron lover, you cannot write, you cannot read any of my Harry Potter. I mean, one of our really close friends and listeners, um, Eliana um, Yisrael, started a web series called Hermione Granger and the Quarter Life Crisis. And the first thing that she does is get rid of Ron. And I'm down with it. Like, I understand it completely, but I still love Ron. Like, I, I realize he's a problem. I realize all of his faults, but I still... I mean, I get it. I get why people... Yeah. I, listen, I get it now. I didn't get it back then. Um, Ron reminded me of someone I dated when I was in high school, like, my prom date. Like, he reminded me of, you know, like, he... Like, I just think that my family birth position and all my friends are convinced that that's that that's it. Why I just don't relate to Ron. Like I don't understand his stance on things, but they said, yeah, that's because you're the eldest, not only in your family, I'm the eldest in my entire generation of this, this huge extended family. So I couldn't relate to feeling overlooked or feeling jealous because I was always first at everything. Even now I'm just, you know, I didn't have that kind of, but since then, I I feel as if life has grown me up so that I can see perspectives beyond, you know, my immediate context and life experiences. I get it. I get why people like Ron and love him and why he's a necessary character. And I think he's absolutely necessary to both Harry and Hermione. <laughs> I'll just never ship it, but I see why it's, I see why he's absolutely necessary and appreciate him more today um so we have this idea about the hogwarts guidance counselor um as like just in general so we have like there should be a minister of social services i've named him herbert and he's terrible at his job but there isn't one and there is not a like guidance counselor like there i remember as when i was in school a student passed away and we had like grief counseling available and um by the school they brought someone in like we had I never like used the guidance counselor but I knew that they were there and um just wondering your thoughts on as you know you are a teacher and you you've worked and taught in different you know levels of education the lack of support for these characters and um, when they're going through, like, obvious trauma, um, do you have, like, thoughts on that? Have you thought about, like, how different it would be if Harry actually had someone to go speak to about witnessing the death of Cedric Diggory and, and having survivor's guilt and then coming back and being, you know, the center of attention and just having no one to help him through <laughs> that, like, no qualified person? <laughs> You know, like, I love Sirius right. to death, but he definitely was not qualified to help him through trauma. <laughs> no, not at all. Because Sirius was like cool, the cool surrogate, you know, parent. He, yeah. he was definitely. And he was not, also dealing with his own trauma as well. So he was like, putting a lot of that on Harry. <laughs> Listen, but it never gets resolved because you know, uh, Rowling killed him off. So you never. I I think that she she didn't treat anyone worse than she treated Sirius and fight me on it. But that's no, not even Remus. Remus had Remus had glimpses of happiness. Sirius had nothing. We this is a different fight. We'll fight about it later offline. 
I and I love series, and I agree with you <laughs> oh, on like everything. Start the sin. Okay. Yeah, we do. Oh, so we I'm actually like, I'm the minority in our group of listeners and like our team, our wizard team. Um, no, there's so many Remus stands. Everyone loves Sirius. No, there's so many Remus stands. And like, I'm like, I said, I'm like very, my Remus and Sirius like is very close in terms of how I rank them. But like, Robin is on some like, Sirius can't do any wrong. Like, you can't say anything critiquing him, even though the whole point of our podcast is to, like... They don't critique him, they slander him. Like, it's a different... And critique them and all that kind of stuff. So that's a different <laughs> It's not the same. Well, about, about, yes. the grief, uh, about the grief counseling and counseling, I actually had that thought many, many years ago. So I'm going to say two things about it. The first is that anytime we had questions or critiques of the wizarding world, back then we had a quite vocal British fandom contingent. So in early Harry Potter fandom, not only were your critiques of Hogwarts um, met with, oh, you don't quite understand our school system, you Americans or you people from other places, I even had what you call Brit pickers on my fanfic because it was, you know, so I had three beta readers who were British. So they could, now I use American spellings, but so they could tell me what, you know, the actual British equivalent or what they're, you know, we always think mm-hmm. that the societies are more similar than they are. So um, I, so I'll sort of punt that question and the first part of that question to say that I am not sure what guidance counseling is like in British schools in general, and then especially British schools of the type that Hogwarts were built on at the time that Rowling is thinking about. And considering her literary influences, I think that that particular role would not have existed because even when I was in school in the 80s and 90s, the guidance counselor was really not someone who you talked to about your trauma. You could be referred out to special services, et cetera. But I think now as, um, as we move into this new millennium or we're, we've, we're almost two decades into the new millennium, people are thinking about grief, trauma, self-care, and the like in ways that are just so important. Um, the other thing I'll say is that I realized it was a problem in the fic and I presented it or posed it as, um, you know, a question both in my meta essays, because I, I love writing meta. I still do it. Um, not as well as I used to, because academia is um, like a vampire. It sucks all the life out of um, your your essays and your critiques elsewhere. I do so much for work. Um, Sometimes I just want to come home and read something or watch something and just leave it alone. But in Trouble in Paradise, and especially Paradise Lost, um, I have all the characters in some degree. They are in counseling up and through. Ron is in marriage counseling. Oh, I'd love counseling. to see Ron that. Ron and Ryan have them in marriage counseling. Um, <laughs> you're I'm a Ron fan who loves to get the shit on Ron, though. But, That's, uh, like, a, no, no, a strange dichotomy. Like, I will not stand for anyone slandering serious black but if you shit on ron i love it because i i understand <laughs> I, listen, I had no like i was not i'm not a ron hater like where a lot of people kill ron off in order to like set up harry that's like what half my ship does and i always told them they suck for that they are really 
Like, no, you cannot do that. He is essential to the trio. But I just don't trust him with Hermione. And so what I did was I did Trouble in Paradise is all about their marriage. Like I was trying to post Goblet of Fire. I knew that Rowling was going to put them together. I've always maintained that. I said, I ship HH, but we are not going to come in. And I am in the minority on that. You all my receipts, I have hundreds and thousands of posts from the early 2000s that are floating around. I have always said that Ron and Hermione were in game, but I said, let's take a look at their marriage. And so no fanfic pissed off um, Ron and Hermione folk or one big happily Weasley family folk more than mine because I was just looking at, they said, you just gave the worst possible scenario of what their marriage would be like. I was like, no, they would need counseling. So they're in counseling. And then in my second fic, um, post that marriage, um, sorry to, you know, ruin it, but, um, it was, it's a really old, you know, it's a lot, half of it won't make sense because I didn't have the last three books at all. Um, I, the first thing in the first chapter I have is Hermione in counseling. Like she is in counseling and refusing to use magic. And so I was trying to think about how you were supposed to be grown in this world. And, um, which is why, um, we read the epilogue and I'm just like, okay, you know, I, if, Listen, Rowling, if you're going to write another series and follow them through their adult life, and then we earn this epilogue, I'd be all right. But I'm just, I've always thought about and wondered how adults function or what they deal with in the wizarding world. Because Hogwarts is amazing, but it's very much a coming of age story, um, the seven book series. And this is very much a school. And so I wondered about the lives of the teachers. I mean, we got some of the teachers' backgrounds. We have certainly we have tons on Snape. But I was really curious about what it would be like to be an adult in the wizarding world. So that meant that when we got Remus in, and I love Remus too, so my Sirius Remus line is probably flipped, so I love Remus almost as much as Sirius and wanted them both to, because I said, okay, if Peter and James are dead, then I was like, Remus and Sirius, how come we can't keep them? So anyway, they, but I, I really think that the lives of grown-ups um, in this particular um, world also were intriguing to me because I began reading the series when I was 22. So um, I would have loved to have seen more. And I'm not sure that the epilogue when I read it, of course, it's not just because my, my ship sank. It's not just that. But it was just like, okay, so how did they get from A to B? I mean, I see that you're planting some seeds, but what is it really like from day to day to be grown in the wizarding world and that damn famous? Because they're all like, Super duper 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 famous at, at the end of this. So um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I think I think as we are reading it this time, um, like as adults, we're definitely thinking about that more. I know that, like, I personally, if we are gonna get like more, I just I want the Marauders. <laughs> I don't care about the rest of the stuff. It's cool, but like that's all I've ever <laughs> wanted. Um, <laughs> but also um yeah i mean this yeah this conversation i feel like could go on for another like five hours um but i know we don't have I much know. <laughs> um so a thing that we do at the end of the like end of all of our episodes is that we nominate um an mvp so like whoever won the episode or like the topic that we're talking about and then someone who's benched so like whoever lost it um 
So I think what we're going to do is an MVP of the fandom. Is that what that is, Robin? Um, yeah. So in terms of everything that we talked about, like who wins? <laughs> characters? Uh, anything. Characters, fandom members, uh, best fic, anything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Um, based on what we've talked mm-hmm. about today. How? Yep. Can I nominate a group of people if it's yeah. one word? Readers. Yeah, I was going to go with the same. I'm going to make um, the, like, I was going to say Wizard Team, but yeah, like the younger, newer members of the fandom coming up, we win because we get all of this great, <laughs> all the tea and all of the history. I was I was trying to be more democratic and and, yeah. and awesome. I was saying all of us, so readers, every all the readers, because like John Green said, you know, no matter what you think of John Green, I know he's controversial, but books belong to their readers, you know. So ultimately, you know, whatever version or you yeah. know whatever we got out of that, book I would say also I'm seeing Bayana type, and she's saying so that's like each. Me. Oh, I, sorry. Yeah, you say yours, and then I'll. Can I can I say my Go ahead. sorry? <laughs> like okay. Um yeah, so I, I think I'm gonna make which is kind of funny, my MVP of the fandom is the Harry Potter fandom. Um partly because like it is kind of one of the you know, it's like the most like it's one of the oldest or whatever, but also just like there's so much history and even just like talking to you for it's only been an hour, but just like it yeah it's there's so much history there's like it you can see like the timeline of it like of it evolving and like kind of how it um influenced the books and like how the books influenced the fandom and just like that whole thing is really interesting to me um and awesome yeah and i am changing my mvp to new fandoms um you know talking about like cassandra claire and stuff because now they have a blueprint like from the hp fandom like of everything that's possible. And so when we see these new things, like with um, the, you know, I, I guess Game of, Song of Ice and Fire is not a new fandom, but like I, I think with the TV show and stuff, when we see a lot of the stuff coming out on the internet and social media, like a lot of it does stem from what the Harry Potter fandom did. Um, and there's like this new like blueprint of how you fan um, that yes. didn't really exist before. So. Yeah. So who would you bench? Yeah. And you can be as shady as possible. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Hmm. <laughs> oh, on a Harry Potter fan cast, I'm going to, just in case any of my old nemeses are listening, you All right. know I'm about to bench Robert Weasley. You know I'm going to I had a feeling... <laughs> I mean, just to give you some background, when we finished um, Goblet of Fire, Ronald Weasley came second in losing the book. And we're like, in a book with a Nazi at the center of it, in which Voldemort comes back. And and we've got, like, house elves and slavery. Like, Ron is so close to losing that book. (laughs) 
Oh, I, I, I love them. I should do. So maybe my real um, bench is fandom controversy that sort of ruins the, the vibe. You know, we come to these playgrounds of the imagination to have fun, not to beef. But, you know, um, I think sometimes the controversies get in the way, although sometimes controversy is necessary, you know, if there's an injustice. So I still okay. think I want to bench the um, controversies and Harry Potter fandom. Awesome. Um, I think I'm going to go, hmm. I don't know, actually. I'm like, everything is so complicated. Um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna bench J.K. Rowling for killing Sirius. Thank you. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> and I started a new like streak here that I'm gonna keep going, which has been benching J.K. Rowling and Universal <laughs> for just not respecting what came before and not living up to the standards that they set. So. Um, yeah, I'm not happy with the new the new additions. I think they could be better and so I want them to live up to what they did. Especially JK. But yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about this stuff. And it was such a good conversation that I wish we had more time. <laughs> of course. Thanks for having me. I'd be happy to come back again sometime. Yeah, we're, so. yeah. we're gotten on this oral history now, so Yeah, it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> we have I yes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh thanks for listening. On Wednesday we will resume our regular schedule and we'll be discussing chapter 18 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Dumbledore's Army. Make sure to read and follow along. Um if you want to join the conversation on Twitter at We Black and Nerds, hashtag wizard team, y'all know the drill. And if you want to talk um, if you want to reach out to our guest, uh, Dr. Thomas, on Twitter, you can find her at Ebony Teach. Ask her all about scholarly work, um, critical race theory in children's literature, or more importantly, try to get the tea from the beginning days of the fandom. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Or in yeah. a couple days, I guess. You're going to get tired of us. <laughs> but maybe not. Probably not. It's been two years. <laughs>